0: Welcome, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick.
1: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints.
2: I um, also grew up outside of Memphis with the town square and the requisite Confederate statue. So to go to Memphis to the National Civil Rights Museum where Dr. King was assassinated and to know that we've reclaimed that space and we're amplifying not only his story, but the stories of the freedom struggle across the country is a powerful thing to behold.
1: That's Deborah Douglas, author of The Moon Guides U.S. Civil Rights Trail Deborah is a product of the Great Migration, northern-born and southern-rooted. She grew up hearing stories about the Civil Rights Movement, and those stories came to life for her as she traveled across several states to perform research for her book.
0: Elizabeth Cady Stanton said that the history of the past is but one long struggle upward to equality. But unlike the path of history, the Civil Rights Trail is not a single long route like the scenic Appalachian Trails that stretch thousands of miles. In fact, the Civil Rights Trail includes attractions and experiences across 15 states.
1: In our conversation with Deborah Douglas, she explains how her guide's focus on the Civil Rights Movement enhances the official Civil Rights Trail.
2: It's a collection of sites and experiences that you can have across the country, across the South, really. The official Civil Rights Trail starts as far east as Wilmington, Delaware, and it goes as far west as Kansas, as far south as Florida and Louisiana, and sites are being added on a regular basis. For my book, I focused on around ten places that were critical to the mid-century civil rights movement story. Mm -hmm. And this includes cultural institutions, museums and institutes and churches, and spaces and places like Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market in Money, Mississippi, where Emmett Till and his cousins were. Or uh, Little Rock Central High School, there's a visitor center across from there run by uh, the National Park Service. And so you can sign up for a tour and you can contextualize that experience with them. They have like a little museum in the visitor center, and then they take you across the street and contextualize the story outside and inside the school, which is actually still a functioning school.
0: Yeah, and actually, we just uh, had Ernest Green on our podcast recently. (laughs) Okay. Um, And so that's what, you know, I was going to ask you, what distinguishes your book from others? And I think You just alluded to it. You focused on specific attractions along the tour.
2: Yes. So first of all, the official Civil Rights Trail is official because Southern Travel Directors got together and designated the trail using really great research. I believe the University of Georgia actually helped do some of the research to decide uh, what city and state should go on the trail. And they made this designation in 2018. So this is the first book that follows that official Southern Trail. So that's the first thing, yes.
1: With so much that happened in 2020, uh, Black Lives Matter, we've seen the Civil Rights Voting Act undermined anti-lynching legislation held up in Congress and just recently we had the Capitol stormed here in Washington. And so we've had a number of places along this trail that have been in the news a lot recently. How important do you think this book speaks to that history and where the country is today? Yeah,
2: I started out doing this research as a travel guide back through time, but it became clear to me that it was also a history book and actually, the responsibility just was, you know, overwhelming at times when I thought about, you know, how important it was for me to get it right. But also, I view this book as a civics book and a roadmap to activism. Is that if that's something that you're interested in, or a roadmap to really help you understand where you stand on the issues today? So this is a living book because. Everything I talk about in the book are issues that are in play right now. When you think about voter suppression, well, you know, I cover extensively the Selma to Montgomery March and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was the crowning achievement of that march. We're in a position right now where Shelby V. Holder gutted, you know, significant portions of the Civil Rights, I mean, the Voting Rights Act. And so we have an opportunity now through the regime change in Washington, D.C., to reauthorize those portions and possibly get the Voting Rights Act to cover the entire country. Because as we have experienced, we've seen with our own eyes that we do have a voter suppression uh, issue in this country.
1: The way the book is structured, you have it starting in Charleston, South Carolina, and ending in Washington, DC. And each stop along the way is essentially a two to three day focus on some of the significant history that's taken place in those areas. What are some of the most inspiring places that spoke to you Yeah,
2: well, just for a grounding, I just want to mention just some of the cities I went to, like Charleston, Atlanta, Selma, Montgomery, Birmingham, Jackson, Memphis, Little Rock, places like that. I want to say that with Charleston, Charleston is largely in there because I needed a foundational chapter. I needed to explain the Black presence in the Americas. And so Charleston was a significant port for enslaved Africans. Uh, you know, during the um, the British colonial period and then beyond. Well, in the B- British colonial period, that explains how we got here. And so, how do you get to a position where you're you're fighting for freedom and you're fighting for full enfranchisement? Well, you know, you have to go back to enslavement and then the the freedom struggle, the Civil War, and that sort of thing. Other things happened in Charleston too, but it's a foundational chapter to explain why we're here in the first place. In terms of places that really stood out for me or touched me, it was amazing to go to um, the home that Dr. King grew up in, that he grew up in a multi-generational home. He was in a middle class family. So much of the story of African-Americans is framed from a position of deficit. I call it deficit framing. We're defined by the the worst experience or the worst possible thing that's ever happened to us. And so, you know, if you listen to certain stories and narratives, you would think that we were always all poor, all dirt poor and never had anything, never worked hard and ever strived for anything. But he grew up in this middle class home, thriving, intelligent adults around him in atlanta in atlanta in Mm -hmm. atlanta yes thank you for me you know my father is from uh, mississippi and my mother is from tennessee so like as a as a great migration baby you know (laughs) going back to my roots in that way i just really love the mississippi uh civil rights museum and that story. And it's just so interactive and so beautiful. And then uh, there's a quilt in there made by Miss Hurtesine Brankin, a woman that I that I met and I've broken bread with her. So to be able to like see like my people, the folks have Hollywood status <laughs> in a cultural space like that was just beautiful. And then I um, also grew up outside of Memphis with the town square and the requisite Confederate statue. So to go to Memphis to the National Civil Rights Museum where Dr. King was assassinated and to know that we've reclaimed that space and we're amplifying not only his story, but the stories of the, the freedom struggle across the country is a powerful thing to behold hmm I'm
0: curious, you know, growing up in the families uh, we have, I grew up with a lot of stories and I'm sure you did too. So I'm curious about what new things you learned that your families may not have passed down and what you learned about yourself during the course of your research and writing.
2: Well, I guess I got to fill in a lot of the blanks. I didn't know that much about the Birmingham campaign, to be honest. I was never really taught about the children's crusade. And I actually got to sit down and and speak with people who participated in the children's crusade. They're grandparents now, but I got to talk about what their day in the life with, who they listened to on the radio, who gave the signal that it was time to skip school and go get some education about civil rights so they would know how to be involved in nonviolent direct action. So that was an eye opener for me. I guess the surprising thing is I talked to um, uh, Reverend Calvin Woods, who's in Birmingham, and he has a placard in his honor in Kelly Ingram Park, which was a staging area for the Birmingham campaign. (laughs) And We were talking one day and I'm asking him about the founding of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights which was founded by uh, Reverend Fred Lee Shuttlesworth and uh, after Alabama outlawed the NAACP in the state of Alabama. And so if you go online or look in any books, you'll find that that organization was founded at Sardis Baptist Church. But I asked him about, you know, what kind of, what was the thought process to get to that, to that meet that church meeting to decide to start this organization, and he talked about a meeting before the meeting, you know, in our community we have meetings before the meeting, <laughs> and so this meeting was ha- held at one of the buildings owned by A.G. Gaston, a black millionaire. Uh, actually, uh, I believe uh, Colin Powell honeymooned at his uh, motel. I think Felicia Rashad went there when she was a little girl. So, yes. So they were at an AG Gaston um property and these were like black leaders black thought leaders so I'm asking you know who was there were there any women because as a woman I'm always concerned about making sure that black women's work is amplified in stories where black men may dominate the narrative I'm like operating on a lot of different levels here Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm like well what were their names and so like what did they do for a living and so at a certain point Reverend Wood said listen here Young lady, nobody wants you to know who was who was where, when, and how and why they were there. And so the thing was that you know, way back then, he, you know, they made a promise that they would keep this a secret. That you know, they were just their power will move in the shadows and it's 2021 and word is bond and he is not telling me anything more wow so that was interesting
1: <laughs> you've you've mentioned some of the well-known names and some lesser-known names from the civil rights movement were there some people that you discovered in doing your research that left an impact on you Well,
2: yes, I made it a point to call freedom writers because we refer to them like in the in the aggregate as the freedom writers. But it was really important for me to give a platform to my elders, the people who really gave me the ability to wake up one morning and just purpose myself to go explore and so I wanted their voice to be in the book. A lot of these people are older and where and when will we have an opportunity to put all of their voices in a single in a single place, a single book or site or whatever. So um, I talked to some freedom writers, white and black, and drilled down into what the, for example, what it was like to be locked up on on parchment farm. Uh, when they were trying to desegregate the um, the bus system in, in Jackson, Mississippi, I talked to like historians, professional historians and amateur historians. I met this really great guy, David Ewing, in Nashville. Um, he's a an attorney turned historian. He found a photograph of John Lewis's uh, first booking photo. John Lewis's first arrest in Nashville because he was a part of the Nashville student movement. And he tried for many years and he he didn't give up. And he finally, you know, went to like a police warehouse someplace, walked up and down and looked inside the boxes and found John Lewis's booking photo. And if you look at uh, John Lewis's biography, you'll see him mentioning many times, how many times that he got arrested. Like that was a point of pride that that he was arrested for a righteous cause.
1: This is the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Discover the world when you visit our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content.
0: Here's more of our conversation with Deborah Douglas, author of The Moon Guides U.S. Civil Rights Trail, as we explore the history and culture of the civil rights movement. I'm curious, Deborah, I I received an email recently that I wanna ask you about. I wrote an article most recently for AAA magazine about the civil rights trail. And I got an email from a reader who said, how come such and such and such isn't part of your your article? And I had to respond, well, it's not part of the trail. It hasn't been recognized as a destination. Are there destinations or attractions that you came across that actually had a place during the civil rights movement that you would like to see added to the trail?
2: Hmm. I don't know that I can answer that question because there's so much information in my mind, all a jumbo, but I will tell you this, that everybody that I met had a civil rights story. Even if their civil rights story is that their family was against civil rights. (laughs) I mean, like literally everybody has a story and they want you to put their story in the book. I actually had lunch with a woman whose parents are a plaintiff in a Supreme Court decision in their favor in Shaw, Mississippi. And, but it was from the 1970s, the early seventies. So like I, I, I followed the mid-century civil rights movement. So I had to, you know, really stay within certain parameters to kind of keep it tight. I really had to build a case to include Charleston for that very reason. But that's why I say it's foundational in it this, no way to get it all in a book that you might have in your bag on the road because it would be too heavy.
1: One of the things that I like about your book is that in addition to covering the historical sites that tell the story, you also give readers and travelers places and recommendations from restaurants that uh, speak to the uh, cuisine of the region to uh, Black-owned businesses along the way. How did those elements become part of this book? Because that's different than what we've seen in a number of guides.
2: Yes. So I wanted to create an experience for people. So not just to make it some sort of esoteric exercise where you go to a museum and then that's the end of your day. I wanted to immerse people in an experience, an experience of the place an experience of being in the south because it's just a lovely region. It has the best food in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, you know, and part of that is shopping, you know, or nightlife. I where appropriate, I have nightlife videos, I mean nightlife venues in this book. And so, um, unless otherwise specified, every business that I mentioned in the book is black owned because I'm also concerned with ethical travel. I believe that storytelling should not be extractive and that I personally in my work should leave a space better off when I've left. And I hope that if I send people to a place that they will leave it better off, that there's this reciprocal relationship where we are benefiting one another. And to just to be really frank and concrete, turning your dollar over in the black community is a way to leave it better and to contribute to the furtherment of this very awesome story of America.
1: One of the things, too, uh, with the African-American experience centers on music, we know that in some places like North Carolina, they've actively invested in a North Carolina music trail that features music. But you include in your book musicians of a historical nature to help tell this story. Speak about that.
2: I was born in Chicago, started school in post-uprising Detroit, and then went to um, a small town outside of Memphis. So I spent a lot of time on the road growing up, and in my career. And a part of that experience is getting the right music to listen to in the car, or now it's having the right playlist when I'm have when I have my earbuds on on the airplane. So I wanted to arm my travelers with music that evokes a space, a place, a moment, or event in each chapter of the book. So, for example, um, in Charleston, you know, talk about We Shall Overcome, which was actually sung as part of a labor strike, um, a multiracial labor strike, the Cigar Factory Worker Strike. And then it was retooled for the Civil Rights Movement. And now it's this iconic song that we associated with that period. Um, I mentioned Carlton Reese and the uh, Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights Choir in the song, We've Got a Job. And that choir actually still exists today. Uh, Reverend Shuttlesworth felt like, you know, music could like, you know, add some energy and momentum to the messaging of the movement. And and that is how we largely experience a lot of the narrative of the civil rights movement. And of course there's John Coltrane who, uh, composed the uh, instrumental Alabama after the 1963 16th Street Baptist Street bombing uh, where four little girls were murdered. But also in Birmingham that same day, two Black boys were murdered in, in, um, in racialized circumstances. So six children were murdered that day, not four. And then Phil Ox, folk singer and uh, war activist, anti-war activist, you know, he was instrumental in uh, composing a lot of the songs associated with the movement. I mentioned the Ballad of Medgar Evers. And of course, you know, you got to mention Nina Simone and Mississippi Goddamn.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. With so much of the Civil Rights Trail speaking to the past history, we know how many of those events contributed to the Great Migration of African-Americans to the North, and now there's a talk about a reverse migration that's been taking place for the past decade or so. What do you think the trail offers in terms of some of those social, political, and economic changes that may take root in our country going forward? What can we really learn about where our futures might be because of the history from that trail?
2: Well, one thing that surprised me as I was drilling down to the activists and leaders in the movement was just how intelligent they were on every level, on a common sense level, but in terms of like their level of education, it made me feel like a slacker. (laughs) And and so they were deeply grounded in the structural issues that they were were fighting for. So for example, Dr. King was talking about universal basic income back in the day. It is not brand new. We just started talking about it in earnest last year out loud because of the, the coronavirus pandemic, but he was talking about it back in the day labor you know the ability to to organize and self-determine is still an issue very much in play a catalytic event of the civil rights movement in Till's murder is something that touches us today too because last year No, thanks to Senator Rand Paul, the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act didn't pass, although it will be reintroduced this year. And uh, we don't have a federal law against lynching. That is like, why don't we have a law for that? And so they had a deep structural grounding in the issues. And I think that the better we understand the structure that we're operating in, we can understand what we can do and what we can't do. Because this is all part of a, it's really a part of the story that we tell ourselves, right? About who we are, how we are, and why we are, and who lives and who dies. And so this trail connects from then to now and self-determining for us today.
0: Mm, Amen. You know, and I was thinking about Emmett Till. There are people who continue to desecrate his memorial. I mean, that just happened um, last year, the year before, and, and how, what state was it in when you visited?
2: Actually, there's a small museum outside of the Tallahatchie County Courthouse in Sumner that had one of those signs with the bullet holes in it. Yeah. So I got, actually got to see that. I'm not quite sure what's going on because I don't understand who looks at history and sees how say a Bull Connor behaved, and how he treated people and the violence that he unleashed on children and go, I want to be like that guy. I mean, because that is what we've been witnessing, that a significant part of the country has looked at the good guys and the bad guys, and has decided affirmatively that I want to be the bad guy. And we have a hole in our soul and that's the way we're going to go
0: there are a lot of uh, places along the civil rights trail that are open to the public.
2: Yes, well, the thing about travel is before you even hit the road, you plan, right? You go on websites, you read books, you go someplace in your mind before you actually hit the road. So you can start planning your trip down because I think there's gonna be pent up demand for people to just break out of their homes and go have an experience. These are easy, quick, close proximity type places that you can go to almost any place in the country. You know, when you consider like where the population is concentrated relative to where these places are. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, indeed. Well, speaking of travel, our last question for you, when we fly again, when you fly again, um, on a long haul flight somewhere, Mm -hmm. who would you choose to sit next to past or present? and why?
2: Oh, that's such a good question. Oh, it's so many people. Well, Diane Nash, a young Diane Nash, because I would like to get a sense of her self-possession at the age that she was when she was a leader of the Nashville movement, a student leader in the Nashville movement. Who doesn't want to get inside the mind of Dr. King and understand what propelled him? Or any number of the white freedom writers. They didn't have to, you know, dedicate themselves to that level of danger, but they did. I really like the way Deborah outlined
0: her book or structured her book. It really did enhance many of the places we've seen. It highlighted some places along the way that complement the civil rights trail attractions and and sites. And I thought that was very unique uh, experience to go through her pages that way.
1: Her guidebook is a little different in that it tries to give one a chance to experience the culture, the food of the South, supporting black owned businesses while exploring many of the historical places that shaped the civil rights movement from.
0: And don't forget the music
1: and uh, the music as well something that she raised too but she really wants to make it an immersive experience not just driven by the history
0: and and that's exactly um what it is and i i really appreciated her amplification of the role of women in the movement um as a woman of color i thought that was a, a very important key i'm just curious Of the sites that she highlighted and and even the places we've been, what has been the most impactful one for you?
1: Well, uh, it's always tough to pick one. And so I'm going to say the places that I've gone to, some of which I've done with you, some of which I've done independently. But Memphis, for me, visiting the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, that was really a sad experience, it, it, uh, because that's where Dr. King was assassinated. Birmingham, too, didn't leave me feeling the way that Memphis did. But uh, DC, uh, obviously, I I think because DC represents the heroic struggle and the victories that we've had and some of the great moments in the civil rights struggle. And also Missouri, Missouri was eye-opening. That trip along those aspects of the civil rights trail, knowing where Dred Scott versus Sanford was argued, Mm -hmm. right there in St. Louis, and then going to the places that we know African-American roots were shaped in uh, the West, that that was really eye-opening.
0: Places like Ozarks, the Ozarks really surprised me, but I think for me, I always come back to Birmingham and I did, as we were going through the 16th Street Baptist Church, and we saw the memorial to the the four young girls who were killed um, the day that the church was bombed. That really impacted me, and uh, and it stuck with me. And, and when I write about the Civil Rights Trail uh, and in the Civil Rights Movement, I actually go there, too, because that really provided the launch uh, or the, the impetus uh, for the collection of gathering in in the movement. I mean, Birmingham, uh, in some ways, is considered ground zero for the civil rights movement. In closing, we'd like to leave you with these words from Ambassador Andrew Young. And as an aside, dear, I just want to remind our listeners that we actually interviewed Ambassador Young's daughter, Paula Young, uh, on on our podcast. And so,
1: That And I actually met the Ambassador when I was in law school at Buffalo and had an interesting conversation with him.
0: I'm sure. (laughs) Up in Buffalo, too, right? But uh, in any event, uh, the, the words of Ambassador Andrew Young, there's no problem on the planet that can't be solved without violence. That's the lesson of the Civil Rights Movement. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're honored that you spent this time with us. Thank you for allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes, and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.